welcome back to You Know What I've Been Wondering. I'm Sarah. I'm Jane. How are you, Jane? I'm doing pretty good. I had a kind of a like low energy weekend that like wasn't amazing. And I'm starting to feel really overwhelmed by just like how messy I've been lately. But I've made a plan for this week. She did. I- <laughs> yes. I sent a message to my our group chat of friends and literally had them sign up for nights that they could FaceTime with me. <laughs> at, and I've given them a specific tasks to watch me do. So like tomorrow night, someone's going to watch me clean off my bedside table and my dressers. And like the next night, someone's going to watch me pick up trash. And like I'm watching, everybody, I'm yeah. watching picking up bottles in the kitchen. <laughs> No, it's in my room. Oh. Like Sarah, if I showed you, like that's my bedside table. <gasps> Aren't you afraid I know. that in it's the bad night shoot out your arm and knock over all those bottles? See, that'd be my fear. See, you want see, I find that an interesting thing to say because you go to sleep with candles in your room. Not lit. And that's my big fear. Not like every night, but like I've seen you do it. I've never fallen asleep with a candle lit. Okay. I have, I sit in my bedroom with candles lit next to me. Although now they're really on my dresser, which I can't reach mm. with my arm. But I've never fallen asleep with a lit candle. Um, but no, I, I mean, like, I do sometimes sleep with, like, my water bottle on my glass next to me. But I do have this fear. It's like, what if my arm shoots out and I knock all that over? I do have that fear, but, but yeah, I'll, that. I'll, we are. I'll fix it this week. Uh, how are you, Sarah? <laughs> I'm good. I am like reeling from this Oprah interview with Meghan and Harry. It is. I haven't watched it yet. I want to. It has permeated my whole day. I'm like, it's all I can think about. At our staff meeting at my school today, the principal, every time we like weren't answering a question or being really quiet, she would just be like, and then Meghan said. <laughs> it was really funny. She was like, I can't stop talking about this. It's, it's so unbelievable. It's like, you're right. It is unbelievable. But I've seen a lot of funny tweets about it. Oh my gosh. The my favorite tweet trend right now is what they're gonna turn Buckingham Palace into. Um my favorite <laughs> suggestion was a lesbian bar. I've seen a lot of like it's gonna become a um what's that Halloween store? Oh it was Spirit Halloween. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Perfect. I love it. My favorite my other favorite one that I saw was like how could the crown possibly be worried about the skin tone of Harry's children when Prince Philip is purple? So <laughs> yikes. I also, the day before the interview came out, I, I haven't watched the interview yet. I saw that it was somebody reported that Prince Philip was in the hospital yes. and like someone reported that he died, but he didn't no, die. He didn't. And so there was like one theory going around that it, this whole thing was just staged to give the crown sympathy right before Harry and Meghan trash talk them. Mm. But it's not really working. No, it's not really working. Someone was like, they're going to kill Prince Philip. (laughs) Just for the the sympathy. Take it for the team, buddy. Truly. That's what they, that's what they think. That's what they think. The other exciting news that I have that's actually about me is that my school is figuring out a plan to have some kids in five days a week, which is a really (gasps) big deal. 
um, not all grades, but some of the grades, we have mm. the space that they can come in every day, which mm-hmm. is very, very exciting. So we went from three cohorts at the beginning of the year, and now in some grades, we'll have one big group again. So I'm, I'm looking, Yay. I think that'll be really good. And to me, that's a sign that things in New York are moving in the direction they're supposed to. Yeah. And that's very exciting. So that's my news. I'm excited because teachers are now uh, able to get vaccinated in Maine. Oh, but the only right. issue is is the DOE hasn't said that yet. Like the DOE is still like, if we're going to help distribute vaccines, it's going to be to people who are to teachers who are 60 and older. Mm. Um, But apparently if you places that are not run by the DOE, like Walgreens or Mm -hmm. um, other pharmacies are, are like, will take appointments from teachers. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's just impossible to get an appointment. I literally have been sitting here like refreshing the Walgreens appointment page. Yeah. And at one point it was like, there are no appointments within 25 miles in the next three days. And I was like, okay, well, I didn't need it to be in the next three days, but like, like, that's interesting. But then I, I refreshed it a couple of times and didn't work. And then it was like, oh, you're in, like you qualify, go ahead and make your appointment. But before I finished, it was like, just kidding. That appointment was taken. So yeah, I think, I think it's just like, it was like this in New York too, when teachers became eligible. I think it's just sort of a like, everyone's trying to get them. Exactly. Play the the internet game. I have heard that a lot of people in New York are getting vaccines um, through just calling vaccine sites same day and being like, do you have vaccines that will expire, but people didn't show up to claim and they're getting vaccinated that way. And you don't necessarily need to be eligible because they're, they, they have to throw them away. Yeah. And so that's one way to get it. But I don't know if that's extending to other States. Yeah. But it's exciting. I know a lot of vaccinated people now, which um, I'm very happy for them. And hopefully the vaccination process continues to roll out on. Yeah. At least this speed, if not faster. But do you want to get started since I know you said you have a hefty Yes. Segment? Yes, I have a I have a, a chunk of a segment today. Um I I didn't know as much about the story as I thought I did. Mm. I thought, ooh, it's gonna be an interesting little true crime story. I thought I was just gonna be talking about ev- the evidence found under the Lindbergh baby's windowsill. Like I thought that was all <laughs> I thought that was all the story was gonna be and how it was like conflicting and pointed different directions. But um that's not really the case, but what I did find was this long story of shenanigans that <laughs> is fascinating to me, and I have a favorite character, and you will know when we get to him. Favorite characters, if this isn't a true yes. story. <laughs> it is, I know. And this guy's probably not the best, but we'll get there. He's still the so, fave. Yeah. In 1927, Charles Lindbergh became an international celebrity when he flew the first solo flight across the Atlantic Ocean. I also didn't realize it was the Charles Lindbergh. I think when I was, when I first heard about this, I was like, oh, like Charles Lindbergh. Mm-hmm. And someone was like, it's not that Lindbergh. They just share the same name. And I was like, oh, I'm so dumb and silly. No, nope, nope. I was right. You were right. It's it, that Lindbergh. Yeah, it's that Lindbergh. The same year, he met his future wife, Anne Morrow, who he married in 1929 in Englewood, New Jersey. And together, the two moved into this rural mansion called Highfields in East Amwell, New Jersey, which is right near Hopewell, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, when properties had eerie names, the good old days. I know. Well, their name is like, it's like an estate. It's out by itself. It's a mansion. It's huge. 
I'm sure now there's probably more big houses all around it, but yeah. On June 22nd of 1930, their first child, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., was born. Either late 1931 or early 1932, Anne became pregnant with their second child, John Lindbergh. I bring this up only because I noticed that their second child was born the same year that their first child disappeared. And I was curious if that was a decision that was made after or before. Because mm. uh, I thought that it was just interesting to me. Uh, but... John was born mid-August, so she was already probably about three months pregnant mm. along when Charles Jr. went missing. Right. Which, like, is a bad time to be pregnant. I feel bad for I her. I know. That's, that's really tough. Yeah. On March 1st of 1932, in what one journalist called the biggest story since the resurrection. <laughs> okay. <yeah. laughs> All right. I know. A lot of these things, like, sound funny, but it's like a baby was taken <laughs> Charles Jr. was abducted from his crib at the age of 20 months. The, yeah, so he wasn't two years old yet. Uh, the Lindbergh's nurse, Betty Gow, was the first to notice that the child was missing. Uh, she saw that he wasn't in his crib, but she assumed that his mother had picked him up because she hadn't seen the mom around in a couple minutes. But she later, around 7.30 p.m., at 7 30 p.m she ran into mrs Lindbergh emerging from having taken a bath and she realized that she didn't have the baby and the baby was in fact gone mm. and that's the official time that he's considered missing 7 30 p.m mm. betty told charles what was going on and he ran to the nursery and found a ransom note in an envelope on the windowsill oh. the first impression of the note was that it was poorly written with bad handwriting and grammar mm. Which I love that they were like, oh, a ransom note. What a shitty writer here. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they did to the Zodiac. They were like, they and you're a shitty writer, by the way. <laughs> Lots of typos. Yeah. I don't think you want to push the Zodiac killer, but okay. <laughs> Charles grabbed his gun and uh, got his butler to come with him, whose name was Ollie Waitley. I, what I have written here is, <laughs> I wrote, Charles grabbed his gun and his butler, but... <laughs> the essentials (laughs) i'm like self-editing uh no he grabbed his his gun and he brought his butler named ollie waitley with him and they went outside to investigate the area under the nursery window Mm. where the kidnapper seemed to have escaped from they found impressions on the ground i don't think they found footprints but they found like the ground had been sunk in like people had been walking around on it and they found what they called pieces of a cleverly designed ladder as well as a baby blanket on the ground. Mm. So I what I think what this ladder was, was it would be suspicious to be walking around with a ladder and be shown up. <laughs> so I, I think right. they basically had a ladder that could be like disassembled into pieces oh, and then reassembled okay. when they got there. A disguise so like, ladder. Yeah, so it's easier to like drive around with and things like that. Mm-hmm. The butler, Ollie Waitley, called the police while Charles Lindbergh contacted his attorney and close friend, Henry Breckenridge, presumably to help with the ransom situation. The Hopewell Borough Police Department and the New Jersey State Police came and did an extensive search of the home and the surrounding area. Mm-hmm. After midnight, the f- a fingerprint expert was brought and examined the latter pieces in the ransom note and found nothing usable. It is believed that the kidnapper and or kidnappers wore gloves and covered the bottoms of their shoes with cloth to blur any footprints. The only fingerprints found in the nursery were that of the baby himself. They didn't even find fingerprints of the parents or the nurse or anything. 
just the baby. The ransom note read, Dear Sir, exclamation point. Oh, (laughs) I did that and I forgot about that. And I think that is so funny. (laughs) Have $50,000 with the dollar sign on the wrong end, ready, spelled R-E-D-Y, $25,000, all of the dollar amounts have the dollar sign on the wrong end, $25,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. There's no commas or period there. New sentence. After two to four days, we will inform you where, spelled W-E-R-E, to deliver the money. We warn you for making anything public or for notify the police. The child is in good G-U-T care. Indications for all letters are signature and three holes. Holes is spelled H O H L S. That you read it as gut and not gut care. <laughs> At first I did, but then no, I got it. Yeah, I, was, yeah, yeah, I yeah. would have been like gut yeah. care. The child is in gut pro- care. They're giving him probiotics. <laughs> <laughs> and the signature that they're talking about in the note is that at the bottom of the note. There's this symbol drawn in red and blue ink that essentially looks like a Venn diagram, but the middle of it has a red circle drawn in it. So it kind of looks like a sideways eye, Mm. like a person eye, not the letter. Mm -hmm. And then the outside circles of the Venn diagram have squiggly lines drawn in them and, and, and the circles are blue. And there is holes punched on either side of the symbol and then in the center of the symbol. And they were like, you'll know the letters are coming from us if it has this symbol and the holes punched in the correct place. Mm. Word of the kidnapping spread very quickly and it became national news. So, <laughs> Which isn't helpful I, I, if they're like, we're going to send you a secret code and then immediately everybody knows the code. I don't know if they published, if like the code was public knowledge, but I do think it was funny that they were like, don't tell the public, don't call the police. And the first thing they did was call the police. And by morning, the whole country knew. Right. So <laughs> they didn't exactly what are they follow supposed instructions. supposed to do be like, my baby is napping. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that like really sucks and you can tell like, oh yeah, this is 1930 and we don't have current police right um procedures is that hundreds of random people started showing up at the estate because they were like oh i'll help look Mm -hmm. and they totally destroyed the crime scene any Mm -hmm. footprints that were usable were absolutely not usable after that yeah and it was they it was just really not handled well yeah and but many interestingly well-intentioned and well-connected people started showing up to offer help looking including several military colonels. Uh, The most notable ones were Herbert Norman Schwarzkopf, who was the superintendent of the New Jersey State Police, Mm -hmm. William J. Donovan, who was a war hero and a future head of the OSS, which is the Office of Strategic Services, which eventually became the CIA. Not Uh, as my brain first thought, the The, organization of super spies from spy kids. And of course, Lindbergh's friend and lawyer, Henry Breckenridge, who ha- who worked on Wall Street at the time, was a big player in the investigation. Mm-hmm. Lindbergh and these three gentlemen examined the ransom note and the grammar and the spelling used, and they surmised that the writer was most likely someone whose first language was German 
or a similar language based on just like how the grammar was structured and the use of spelling like good yeah. babies and good care yeah uh, i think that makes things sense like that they also speculated that the kidnapping was perpetrated by an organized crime figure oh charles Lindbergh used his influence to heavily controlled the direction of the investigation and he was really into this organized crime theory he was like it was the mob i know it and people have later kind of criticized how much control charles Lindbergh had of the investigation considering he was the father of the baby kidnapped right they were like he's a little too close for that also, we maybe should have just been listening to police also most kidnappings are perpetrated by a person you know mm. mm-hmm. um but he was really pushing this organized crime thing so they contacted this man named mickey rosner who is described as a broadway hanger on <laughs> who... <laughs> that's not Me. funny but it is <laughs> <laughs> he was at first my favorite character i was like i love the broadway hanger on and he like apparently knew some mobsters so they contacted yeah, him mickey. and they were like i'm sure he does <laughs> They were like, hey, Mickey, go find some, like, mobster contacts for us. So (laughs) Mickey Rosner went to two speakeasy owners, one named Irving Bitts, and the other, I love this name, Salvatore Salvi Spitale. Oh, my God. So his first name and last name both sound like Spit. Um, And his nickname is Salvi. Oh my God. And he convinced the both of them to help the Lindbergh family. The Lindbergh family hired these two men to be their intermediaries with the mob. Right. And several organized crime figures who were in prison at the time, including Willie Moretti, Joe Adonis, Abner Zwillman, and Al Capone. Ah. Yeah offered to help with the investigation in exchange for money or legal legal favors such as reduced sentences. Al Capone specifically asked to be released from prison so that he could go in person to help the Lindbergh family. This request was denied immediately. I didn't know that. I thought that was insane. I remember hearing that at some point in my life. Mm -hmm. That Al Capone was like trying to help. He was like, I'll help. To get out of jail. Yeah. Attorney General William D. Mitchell, however, uh, met with Hoover. So they didn't let the guy out of jail, but they were like, the the governor was on it. No, Herbert Hoover. Herbert Hoover. Okay. Yeah. I also was like, wait, J. Edgar Hoover wasn't the president. And then I was like, oh, right. The Great Depression, that Hoover. Right. Um, Yeah, he met with Herbert Hoover and announced that the... Oh, well, oh, no, 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 I I skipped a little point. The morning after the kidnapping, President Herbert Hoover was contacted, but it was decided that it would be a state matter rather than a federal one. Mm. However, Attorney General William D. Mitchell met with him and they announced that the Department of Justice would cooperate entirely with the New Jersey authorities and do whatever New Jersey said they needed. Mm. The FBI was authorized to investigate the case and the Coast Guard, Customs Services, and Immigration Services, as well as the Washington, D.C. police, were told to be on standby in case their services were needed. Hmm. New Jersey officials announced that there would be a $25,000 reward for the safe return of Little Lindy, and the Lindbergh family offered an additional $50,000 of their own. 
So that would be a total reward of $75,000. I would just like to point out How that- How much is that in today's money? In today's money, it's almost $1.2 million. Wow. And this was the middle of the Great Depression. Oh, yeah. How'd they get yeah. that money? <laughs> Being an international celebrity because he flew places. <laughs> that is true. They were like, yeah, you just flew from one place to another. You can have all the money you want. You <laughs> might be a wizard. <laughs> On March 6th, a second ransom note arrived by mail at the Lindbergh home. The letter was postmarked on March 4th in Brooklyn and had the same special symbol on the bottom. The letter raised the ransom to $70,000. So I would just like to point out that the ransom is now $70,000, but the reward is $75,000. So if I'm the kidnapper, I would just show up with the baby being like, look, I found him and take the $75,000 and get more money than you planned on. Anyway, enter my favorite character, John Condon. Mm -hmm. John Condon. Who is John Condon, you ask? I do. John Condon (laughs) was a mostly retired school teacher and principal living in the Bronx. He is described as, before this, he was described as a well known Bronx personality. (laughs) That's funny. He was this 71-year-old man who was known for being extremely cheerful and loquacious. He frequently stopped people on the street, whether he knew them or not, to challenge them to a math problem that he just made up. (laughs) That does sound like something you would do. Yeah. (laughs) He's my hero. He was horrified by the Lindbergh kidnapping and really wanted to help out the baby. He considered Charles Lindbergh to be a big hero of his. So he published a letter in a newspaper called the Bronx Home Beat offering $1,000 of his own money to the kidnappers if they would turn the baby into any Catholic priest. I don't know how he thought he would do that, but. (laughs) You can give him to any priest. It's like, they're like all the way up to California and they're like, I was told to bring this baby. (laughs) What? Any Catholic priest in the whole country will will know what it means. Yeah, and I don't know how he thought he would get $1,000 to the kidnappers. Anyway, but he also said in this letter, I stand ready in person at my own expense to go anywhere alone on land or water to give the kidnapper the extra money and promise never to utter his or her name to anyone. So basically, he's like, I won't write you out. I just want you to give me the baby. I'll even give you money. Oh, my God. Which is kind of sweet. Well, no, because they, they, they should, there should be some legal repercussions. No, I agree with you there, but I think it's sweet that his highest priority was, I just want the baby to be safe. Mm, okay. Yeah. Um, the kidnappers must have seen this letter because they sent a third ransom note to Henry Breckenridge instructing that John Condon must be made the official intermediary between the Lindberghs and the kidnappers. Oh. They also requested in this letter that the ransom money be put in a specifically sized box and that they inform the newspapers that their letters were received and understood. I think the intention here was like, they were like, we can't tell you where we are. So to contact us, you have to put stuff in the newspapers. But in Uh, all of their letters, they 
or they They're like stay insist. away from the news they no, they tell them to use the newspapers to contact them but at the same time they're like but don't you dare go to the authorities or tell right. the police right but how on earth do they expect him to, to notify the media the but not the police right <laughs> like they really didn't think this through. i know really that's mm. funny that that doesn't make any sense John Condon also received a letter from the kidnappers telling him of his new role as the intermediary. And he went to visit the Lindbergh family and huh. made the plans to coordinate everything. And Charles Lindbergh suggested that John F. Condon take his initials, JFC, and turn them into his new code name, oh. Jaffsy. Jaffsy. And he went by Please that for the rest that. of his life. He was like, <laughs> Charles Lindbergh gave me a nickname and I'm taking it to my grave. <laughs> Can you imagine if his yeah. gravestone said Jaffsy mm-hmm. on it? <laughs> As instructed, Condon placed a classified ad. Sorry, I'll refer to him exclusively by his nickname because I only want to call him Jaffsy also. Okay. Um, he placed a classified ad in the New York American magazine, I think. It's either magazine or newspaper. But it read, money is ready. And it was signed Jaffsy. <laughs> Oh my God. And they were just supposed to, how, Which I'm sh- how did they communicate to the kidnappers that Jaffsy was Condon? He was the new nickname. I, I don't know. I don't Somehow know. they knew. John Condon, <laughs> I wrote here, quickly becomes a character. Oh, of course. He loved the sudden attention he was getting and the- Yeah, I would too. <laughs> yeah. He was like, I'm going to milk as much out of this as I possibly can. And law enforcement grew very quickly tired of him because he was constantly embellishing his role in all of this and his stories because he was exaggerating a lot, had a lot of contradictions. He is referred to as a tireless publicity hound and a self-aggrandizing oddball. (laughs) (laughs) Big mood. And I don't know, like, I just think he'd be the most hilarious character if this were made into like a no, this sounds movie. like a fictional character, not like it a- really does, but he was a real person. Like, what? Yeah. For the next two months, though, um, Jaffsy was the go between for the Lindberghs and the kidnappers. On March 12th, as instructed, he met with a man at Woodlawn Cemetery whose name was John, who he referred to as Cemetery John. <laughs> and Maybe because his name was also technically John and he was like, I don't want there to be confusion. Like, I'm Jaffsy, that <laughs> That's guy's Cemetery, Cemetery John. John. <laughs> I'm going to start coming up with innocuous nicknames like that for all the Sarahs I know. <laughs> I'm also, for the rest of this, going to refer to Cemetery John as Cemetery John Naturally. because I just thought it was easier to remember. Right. <laughs> Cemetery John apparently told Jaffsy that he was a Scandinavian sailor who belonged to a group of three men and two women who were keeping the baby unharmed on a boat and they would return him once the ransom was received. Jaffsy said that despite the complete darkness, he got a perfect look at Cemetery John (laughs) and could easily pick him out of a lineup and would recognize his voice anywhere. All right. Jaffsy also said that he didn't believe the man that the baby was alive and he asked for proof. So Cemetery John offered to send Jaffsy the sleeping suit that Charles Jr. was wearing as proof that he was still alive, which I don't understand how that proves that he would be alive. Yeah. I'd like to sniff it and be like, smells fresh. Yeah. <laughs> and he also said, he also asked Jaffsy 
would I burn if the package were dead? Which apparently is slang for if it were to come out that I killed the baby, would I get the death penalty? Right. Which is such a suspicious thing to say. That is a very <laughs> suspicious thing to say. Someone's like, so is the baby dead? I don't know. Would they kill me if he was? Like, no, you'd say he's alive he's if alive. he were alive. Yeah. <sighs> so that didn't inspire hope in my reading of this story. No, it did not. But days later on March 16th, Japsy did indeed receive the baby's sleeping suit in the mail. And the Limbergs confirmed that it was the one Charles Jr. was wearing when he was taken. He also received a further letter of instructions. He placed a new ad, as he was told to do so, in home news. We keep jumping around to different newspapers, and it's kind of fun. Um, <laughs> learn about all these little publications. I guess it was so, like, the general public couldn't figure out what was going on. Yeah. If he was publishing uh, newspapers. Yeah. But the message that he published in home news was, money is ready, no cops, no secret service, I come alone like last time. Mm. Which again, like, I don't know how he's claiming that the cops don't know about it. I get like the cops won't show up because he said he, they wouldn't, but still suspicious to me. Yeah. On April 1st, uh, he received a letter that it was time for the ransom exchange and that he would get a message knowing what to do. And I love this part. They made a custom made box to put the ransom money in. And it was made specifically to be the size that the kidnappers asked for, but they also wanted it to be custom made so that they could identify it later and use it as evidence if they caught someone with it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that was one way of trying to trap the kidnapper that they thought of. They also used a bunch of bills that they didn't mark them, but they wrote down all of the serial numbers okay. so that they could make that, make all those serial numbers public to businesses so that they could be on the look for those serial numbers that and report sense. customers who, who used them. Okay. They also included a number of bills called gold certificates, which were about to be withdrawn from circulation. They were just like a different type of money, Yeah. but were probably more expensive to make. And they put those in there because, because they were about to be taken out of circulation. They thought they would stick out more if someone used yeah. them to pay for stuff. Yeah. On April 2nd, Jaffsey was in a cab and the driver, who is unidentified to this day, handed him a note, instructed him to meet Cemetery Dawn at the <gasps> cemetery. Oh, I know. I was like, that was, that was the part earlier. I was like, this part is nuts. <laughs> so Jaffsey went to the cemetery. I guess the cab, the cabbie probably dropped him off. Uh, Jaffsey Ooh, that met with him. That scene in the first episode of Sherlock with the cabbie oh yeah similar vibe similar vibe yeah 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 yeah. jaffsey met with cemetery john and he said that they could only raise fifty thousand dollars which i don't necessarily i'm like no you said you had 75 but whatever cemetery john was like okay i'll take fifty thousand, even though he asked for 70 technically and he gave jaffsey a note saying that charles jr had been given to two innocent women to be taken care of so they were like, I'm not going to give him back to you, but he's with nice people who are taking care of him. Do you think the I don't have him anymore? If they existed, knew he was the Lindbergh baby? Or do they think they were like, hi, um, here's your baby, take care of him? I don't know. It'd be, I see, mean, a in my mind. 
Not that we had yeah. wide access to. I mean, I guess they could have published his photograph in the paper. But like there are pictures of infants him. look very different than 20 month olds. Like 20 months olds, I'm like, okay, you look like your parents. You know, you look yeah. like a defined person. So I feel like it would be harder yeah. for someone to be like, that's just an infant. Like you'd be able to tell, like, oh, mm-hmm. he looks like that kid, you know? Yeah. Well, they I think that was maybe the hope. They were like, okay, two nice ladies have him. Maybe they'll see his paper in the newspaper and mm-hmm. bring him back to us. Right. Uh, so that was where things were left at that time. About uh, like a month and a half went by and nothing new was really discovered. They couldn't find the baby. They didn't have any suspects. And sadly, on May 12th, the body of Charles Lindbergh Jr. was found. Hey, I know. A delivery truck driver named Orville Win- Wilson and his assistant, didn't know truck drivers had assistants, um, named <laughs> William Allen. <laughs> I'm assuming it's just like the guy who was driving and the guy who went to help right. to carry boxes. Um, right. They were out driving their truck and they pulled over to go to the bathroom in the woods at a spot that was about 4.5 miles south of the Limburg home. So it was really close to the house. Yeah. And they found him there. They found the body amongst the trees. The skull had been badly fractured and the body was significantly decomposed and scavenged. Experts indicate that he was probably hit in the head and that was the cause of death and then hastily buried and animals like quickly dug him up. Um, so he, he didn't look great. Um, the nurse, Betty Gow identified the body, uh, apparently by a specific way that the toes on his right foot overlapped. Mm. And she also identified the shirt he was wearing, which she had made for him. I know it's so sad and they quickly had him cremated because the body was just like really not great to look at it was it was sad yeah in yeah in June of 1932 officials began to suspect the kidnapper had to be somebody who was close to the family and their suspicions fell on this woman named Violet Sharp and Violet Sharp was a British servant in the Lindbergh house who had given some pretty contradictory stories about where she was the night of the kidnapping Mm -hmm. this is kind of a sad story because it's it's now believed that she was just a generally anxious person who grew easily flustered when questioned by authority figures and maybe forgot some details and police took her nervousness and forgetfulness as suspicious and apparently treated her with a lot of heavy handedness and questioned her three different times. And she was just really scared and they were coming to in to question her a fourth time. And she just got so overwhelmed and sadly committed suicide on June 10th by ingesting silver polish and cyanide. But yeah, when this first happened, they were like, Oh, this is guilty behavior. She must've done it. But then her alibi was confirmed by somebody else that was like with her the whole night and they had proof. So they were like, well, we just horrified a young woman and now she is sadly dead. Police were also kind of suspicious of Jaffsy, but they, (laughs) they look, but they looked into it and like looked at his house, like looked at all of his alibis, investigated him pretty thoroughly. And they found no evidence to suggest that he did anything other than, talk to cemetery john and deliver the stuff right and get the messages john condon or jaffsy though spent the next two years wringing every drop of attention he could from the situation 
He talked about his involvement in the case nonstop, made a big show of the fact that he was on the hunt for Cemetery John. He would... (laughs) His mortal enemy. His mortal enemy. He would frequently show up at various police departments and be like, I'm here to help with the hunt for Cemetery John. And... Like insisted at like, looking at home. <laughs> yeah, he was like, "Let me look at you, whoever you have locked up at the moment. I bet I could identify him." But it never really helped with anything. Right. On one occasion, apparently while riding a city bus, he claimed that he saw Cemetery John on the street walking by, and he jumped up and made a big show of revealing his quote unquote secret identity. <laughs> and <laughs> it was like, "It is I, Jeff C." <laughs> This is my favorite part of the story. I know. It's like, I know this is a tragedy, but that is so funny. And he ordered the bus driver to pull over and then darted off the bus. And he was like, I'm going to go catch him right now. But like nothing came of that. So either he caught the guy and realized it wasn't him or the guy outran him. So that right. was just like kind of an embarrassing situation for him. liberty magazine published a series of articles about jaffsy's perspective of all of this entitled jaffsy tells all and he became kind of a well-known figure like people were like oh yeah jaffsy he's part of it (laughs) many though have (laughs) you know many have criticized him though saying that he exploited a sad situation into like this vaudeville act for his Mm. own benefit and I definitely think he did, and that's not good. But at the same time, it's kind of funny. I <laughs> don't is. know. <laughs> um, him standing up on a bus and revealing <laughs> his quote-unquote secret identity is so funny. If the royal family is dissolved, all I can say is that I hope that one day, like, freaking Meghan Markle's on a bus somewhere now that she'll ever take a bus or she'll be on a bus one day and she'll like see Prince Charles at a window and be like it is I Meghan Markle <laughs> and she goes and gets that guy <laughs> he runs off the bus <laughs> really the bus story is just the funniest especially the fact that nothing came of it he just ran into a crowd of people and was never seen <laughs> like he was seen again but he just like hasn't said what happened that day and everyone it's was like, like <laughs> it's like the john mulaney bit where he's like there's no follow-through with that guy <laughs> so investigators spent the next two years tracking the bills with the serial numbers that were on the ransom money and they noticed that all of the bills were turning up at businesses and banks along the lexington avenue subway line going from manhattan into the bronx mm-hmm. So they're keeping, there's still all these connections to the Bronx. So they were pretty much like, the, like they're, they've got to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, that location is key to, the, to what happened. In September of 1934, a Manhattan bank teller noticed a gold certificate that had been recently deposited. And the, the reason why it stuck out to him, not only was it a gold certificate, but it also had a license plate number written in the margins. Mm-hmm. And so he just was like, well, this is kind of suspicious. Um, so they found, they looked at who deposited it and it was a gas station manager who had brought it in the other day. And they asked him why there was a license plate number written in the margins. And he said that a guy came in to buy gas and mm-hmm. he paid with this 
gold certificate and he seemed really nervous while paying with it like 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 he knew that using that bill would be suspicious and he seemed kind of shifty so the guy he didn't think he was the kidnapper but he thought oh maybe this guy's trying to use counterfeit money so he wrote down the guy's license plate just in case the it turned out to be fake and he could be like well it was this guy Mm -hmm. and so because they had this license plate they tracked it back to this man named Richard I think it's pronounced Hopeman Mm -hmm. it's spelled H-A-U-P-T-M-A-N-N yeah probably it's like Hoptman 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 yeah and he lived in the Bronx he was a German immigrant. Ah, Jaffsy's who... from the Bronx. The Bronx is a huge place. Well, I'm pretty sure that's just like how Jaffsy was picked. Like not only did he publish this thing, but he was a, like a well-known Bronx character mm-hmm. before all of this. Right. So he was like, oh yeah, Jaffsy. I'll get him. Although he wasn't called Jaffsy then, I don't think. I love that like that's what a well-known Bronx character is, was in like the 1920s where now if you were like, who's a well-known Brooklyn character? It's like, it's definitely that homeless guy that rides the R train. Like, <laughs> Oh yeah, it's not the, this guy was a 70, 71-year-old retired school principal right. who asked people math questions. Right. <laughs> yeah, so they found this guy, Richard Hauptmann who lived in the Bronx and he was a German immigrant with a criminal record back in Germany. And when they found him, he had one of the gold certificates on him from the ransom. Yeah. And they, well, they, well, they found him at his house, but they immediately found a bag with $14,000 worth of the ransom money in the garage. Mm-hmm. And his story was that he, his former business partner whose name was Isidore Finch, um, who used to live in the U.S. and the two of them did work together some. And then he grew very sick. So he returned to Germany and then passed away. Mm-hmm. He was, he said, oh no, it was Isidore Finch. He did, a, like, I didn't know if he did anything, but before he left for Germany, he gave me this shoebox and I didn't even open it until after he died. I looked inside and saw that he left me a bunch of cash and I don't know what it was from. I just, you know, started using it because my friend left me money. Right. Um, I've been set up by this circumstances. But the they searched uh, Hopeman's home during the case of the trial, and they found a notebook with sketches of how to construct the ladder that was used <gasps> for the kidnapping. Yeah. Oh, that's they found. Yeah, they found Jaffsey's phone number and address that were used to write him the letters of mm-hmm. instructions it was written on the inside wall of a closet oh that's so they pretty- would go so they would go into the closet and write the letters and, and they also found pieces of wood in his attic that were an exact match for the wood that was used to build the ladder oh, shit. so it wasn't looking good for hopeman handwriting experts also believed that his handwriting matched up with all the ransom letters and he had also in the past few years made some large purchases that couldn't be explained by the amount of money that he was earning at the time Mm -hmm. and finally they brought in his wife Ann Hopeman to testify on his behalf like she was brought in by the defense and she also was like it was Isidore Fish and he went to Germany and, fr- and gave us this money and it's not our fault. And 
but the thing is when they interviewed her about where this shoebox full of money that was given to them by Isidore Fish was kept, she her story was not matching up at all with mm. her husband's. And finally, this Isidore Fish character was ruled out of suspicion because he was dying of tuberculosis and a large part of the fact that he was dying. I don't know if it's the only reason, like, I don't know if he could have been cured, but he couldn't afford medical treatments. Mm. And his landlady was brought in and testified. And she said that he could barely afford his rent, which was $3 and 50 cents a week. Oh, Again, 1934. I wish. I know. I spent that on my coffee today. (laughs) (laughs) And that's cheap. Can't get, you can't get coffee for three fifty at Starbucks. They definitely thought like Isidore Fish died of tuberculosis because he couldn't afford medical treatment and he couldn't afford his rent. So there's no way that he was a kidnapper who who had fifty thousand dollars on his person. Yeah. He definitely didn't have money, so it most likely was not him. Right. Hopeman was found guilty of extorting fifty thousand dollars and then also for the kidnapping and capital murder of Charles Lindbergh Jr. Which, random other question I had while doing this, Charles Lindbergh Jr. and Charles Lindbergh have the same middle name, so, and my dad is also a junior, and he and his father have the same first and middle name, but I was wondering, do you have to share a middle name in order to be considered a junior, or can you just have the same first name? No. Oh, okay. You know what I've been wondering? You answered that question. Thank you. Save us an episode. (laughs) So yeah, Hopeman was found guilty of pretty much everything and he was executed by electrocution on April 3rd, 1936. There are some theorists who think he's innocent and there is a general critique of uh, the fact that Charles Lindbergh played such a big part in the investigation and the police did some pretty inadequate work in a couple places and they really, like even before he was on trial the police beat hopeman a lot Mm. so they were pretty brutal people think this trial was kind of like not the best which is true but i i do think the evidence is pretty strong against hopeman yeah but the one thing that's kind of haunting and i don't think this necessarily says he's innocent but i do think it says something about his state of mind and like the denial he was clinging to and the same thing for his wife mm-hmm. um, was that he was offered a deal while he was on death row. And they said, if you confess, we'll switch your sentence from the death penalty to life in prison. Mm-hmm. And he never took that deal. He claimed innocence until his death and his wife li- out. She lived to be 95 and she spent her entire life fighting to clear his name. So that's just kind of like chilling. Yeah. I still think he's guilty, but that is interesting. Odd. Yeah. This case went on to become a worldwide topic of discussion. It is the inspiration for the case, which is described in the Agatha Christie novel, Murder on the Orient Express, mm-hmm. which is known in that book as the disappearance of baby girl, Daisy Armstrong. Yeah. It is referenced in numerous other novels, in some music and films it just became part of the vernacular i feel like and my last bullet point here is that in 2013 an author named melanie benjamin wrote a historical fiction novel about this entire situation from the perspective of anne morrow Lindbergh, the mother of 
Charles Jr., which this whole time reading this, I was like, why did we not hear from her more? Like, this woman was pregnant at the time, and we like her husband was such in control of it, and their whole relationship, I think, is so interesting. Charles Lindbergh was definitely like a what a Captain Von Trapp at the beginning of Sound of Music type. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) He he apparently had took detailed notes of every time he caught any of his children chewing gum or doing anything that he considered a little bit like not great. And he had his wife take very detailed notes of their finances, even though he was not, he was only home for like two months a year. So, And they had five more children after this situation. So, you know, big family, strict dad, (laughs) like military. I was like, this guy, Captain Von Trapp, his wife is described as like intelligent and a strong lady there is a lot of like okay this was written in the 1930s but like he described her as being like the perfect wife for mothering children Mm -hmm. so that definitely seemed to be like her role in life but I think she definitely has an incredibly value perspective that is not talked about definitely and I would love to read that novel so thank you Melanie Benjamin for writing that and I don't know if it's good or not but maybe I'll read it someday so that's what I got on the Lindbergh baby (laughs) wow I really just Jaffsy. Wow, that took over my day. <laughs> like this is the only thing I'm going to talk about now. This is going to be my new fun fact <laughs> for the next couple. Character. Of, this next next couple of months. This is my fun fact. There's a man out there. <laughs> there was a man named Jaffsy. Yeah, boy. I don't think he's alive anymore, no, considering he was 71, 71 in 1930. Yeah, he's not alive. Thank you for that lovely, lovely story. Speaking of women. So today, so for the middle segment, I would like to talk about International Mm -hmm. Women's Day, which is today. So it'll have been two days in the past by the time you're listening to this. Yeah. I just want to talk about like a brief history of International Women's Day and how it got started. I think it's good to know. So International Women's Day has been observed since the early 1900s. um, And it really began during the suffragist movement um, in New York City. In 1908, 15,000 women marched through New York City to demand shorter hours, better pay, and voting rights, and this march eventually directly led to the passing of the 19th Amendment in, the, in 1922. 1921? 22. I think it's 22. But in 1909, following this march, um, in accordance with a declaration by the Socialist Party of America, the first National Women's Day was observed across the United States on February 28th, and then women continued to celebrate on the last Sunday of February through 1913. So the first official one in America, 1909. But then in 1910, an International Conference of Working Women was held in Copenhagen, and a woman named Clara Zetkin, who was the leader of the Women's Office for the Social Democratic Party in Germany, presented the idea of an International Women's Day, and she proposed that every year in every country, there should be a celebration on the same day to press for their demands. Um, The conference included over 100 women from 17 countries who represented unions, socialist parties, working women's clubs, and included the first three women elected to the Finnish parliament. And they all greeted Zetkin's suggestion with approval and thus declared International Women's Day. Yay! Following this decision, in 1911, International Women's Day was honored for the first time in Austria, Denmark, Germany, and Switzerland on the 19th of March. Um, On that occasion, more than 1 million women and men attended International Women's Day rallies, campaigning for women's rights to work, vote, um, hold office, and have jobs. 
Um, unfortunately, less than a week later, on March 25th, it, at the what's called the Triangle Fire in New York City, um, ended up killing more than 140 working women, most of them mm. Italian and Jewish immigrants working in factories. But this event drew a lot of attention to working conditions and legislation around women's labor in the United States. And that became a huge focus of subsequent International Women's Day events. And now that's still a big focus on um, International Women's Day is improving the work, improving the workplace for women and protection for women in mostly female dominated fields. On night in 1913, 1914, uh, when the world was on in the midst of World War One, Russian women observed their first International Women's Day on February 23rd. Now, something I found really interesting is that in Russia, in the, at the start of World War One, they were still on the Julian calendar, not the Gregorian calendar. So February 23rd oh. for them was actually March 8th, <gasps> and following Russia d- declaring a women's day and observing international women's day they agreed the european union agreed to celebrate it on march 8th and russia ended up changing over to the um gregorian calendar in 1917 so that's how it all became march 8th which i think is super interesting um especially Mm -hmm. because march 23rd or february 23rd is my mom's birthday so in some worlds (laughs) my mom's birthday was international women's day um, but this again began on um, in February of 1917 because the Russian women began a strike for bread and peace in response to the death of over 2 million Russian sh- soldiers in World War I. Although this was opposed by um, political leaders, they continued a four-day strike until the Tsar Nicholas II abdicated and the new provisional government granted women the right to vote. Um, and because this strike commenced on February 23rd of the Julian calendar, um, at this point, when they switched over to the Gregorian calendar, it was March 8th, and that became International Women's Day. It was not officially um, a holiday that was recognized internationally or celebrated internationally until 1975 when the UN was celebrated International Women's Day for the first time on March 8th Um, and in December 1977 the General Assembly adopted a resolution proclaiming a United Nations Day for Women's Rights and International Peace to be observed at any day of the year by member states in accordance with their historical and national traditions Um, and that inevitably became National um, International Women's Day. And that is Yay. sort of just how that was established, which I think is yeah. a really interesting story. Yay. Th- thank you for bringing that up. I was hoping you would. I noticed um, Sarah does our Instagram and I noticed that you did a post on Instagram that was cute. And then our friend Jenna commented that we inspire her. And I was like, okay, that's very nice. But also like <laughs> other women are doing a lot. But <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> mostly a joke but thank you taylor also messaged me that uh we inspire her so we inspired two people i mean i don't want to take congratulations away from us because we are doing a fun thing that we don't like that's just i don't know a nice fun little podcast and i think that's nice um so like like there's nothing wrong with saying your friends inspire you i think that's great yeah um so I'm not going to be like, we can't inspire you. But at the same time, there's, right. no, I, for I, me, with my low self-esteem, you know what I mean? Right, I do It's know. hard to accept inspiration as a thing when I'm like, yeah, but like, 
I don't know, Whitney Houston exists. Like, well, exist. <laughs> existed. No, no, no. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. But you can appreciate, that's the point, is that you're supposed to appreciate all women, regardless of yeah. their work or, like, what they put yeah. out into the universe. You know, just appreciate women. I should text my mom. Wow. Well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I should text mine. I'm going to text her right now. So now that we have that covered, and now that we have your thing covered, it's time to talk about my vastly different topic on the <laughs> other side of the world. Today, I'm going to be talking about the 47 Ronin. Okay, great. I, this was such a different story than I thought it was going to be, but I loved it. I loved it. I had such a good time. I literally sitting here being like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. So I'm glad Reven we both had days learning stories. Yes. So the revenge of the 47 Ronin is also known as the Akau incident or the Akau vendetta. And it occurred in the 17th century, roughly between 1701 and 1702. Now, this is a story that became popularized in the West when the events were retold by A.B. Mitford and his book Tales of Old Japan, which was published about 150 years later. Um, and the, But the story that A.B. Mitford told was significantly fictional, very embellished. Um, but it is important to know that the 47 Ronin did exist. So if you hear the version of the story that A.B. Mitford told, it's going to sound a lot different than what I said. But this, what I'm giving you now, is like what's accepted as the true story. Um, and there are many other fictionalized accounts of the 47 Ronin. And any fictionalized version of their story is referred to as uh Gura. so if you hear that phrase that means it's a fictionalized tale of the 47 roman which is nice that they have a word to be like that's the fake one mm -hmm. now the reason that um we have so many fictionalized accounts or embellished accounts is because at the time of this incident japanese law forbid the portrayal of current events in literature and plays meaning that the first Tushingira was published about 50 years after the incident occurred was like the first written recording of it so oh. a lot of passing the story along and based off of mm -hmm. documents that were left and existed and people and like personal conversations um not based off of like they didn't have newspapers that wrote it all down and an attempted factual recounting of the event, so a nonfiction writing of it, didn't occur until 75 years later when Isaac Tixing, um, who was a Dutch scholar, recorded this as a significant event in the Genroku Japanese era. He was writing a, um, history, a, a history book about the Genroku Japanese era, and he defined this as one of the most significant moments. So a lot of the writings about it, which are more, which are lengthier, didn't happen until a significant amount of time later. So it is important to keep that in mind. But never, mm -hmm. nevertheless, this event did occur. Um, so remember that some of this story is open to interpretation or is speculative. Yeah, but it's still like kind of a tradition and and it, but it did like happen. Oral history. And, yeah, and yeah. We know based that on happened. true events. Yes, we know yeah. that it did happen in some in some way. Mm -hmm. so ronin the word ronin um means a group of leaderless samurai oh the participants in this particular revenge plot are also alternatively called the akaroshi but most people will refer to them as the 47 ronin in english 
So picture this, the year is 1701 and we're in feudal Japan. Now our first two players that you're going to hear about are two daimyo. Um, and daimyo are Japanese great lords. So we know in the feudal system, we've got the, the you know, emperor or the king or the, um, in this case, we have the shogun. And then you have lords who are in charge of land and they have people that work on the land and they have villages, whatever. And daimyo are the lords. The first of these lords is Asano Takumi no Kami Nagan Naganori. I'm going to refer to him as Asano. And he's a main player. And okay. Asano was the young daimyo of the Ikao domain, which was pretty small. Uh, and the second player is, right now is Lord Kamai Korachika of the Tsutsuano domain, who, which was a little larger. Now, it's important to remember that at this time, Japan had an emperor and it had a shogun. Although the emperor held the royal title... As the leader of the military, the shogun had all the real political authority. So really, Japan was in a military was under a military dictatorship at the time, despite having an emperor who represented um, uh, a, a aristocracy. It really was a, mm -hmm. a military a military country. At the time, daimyos were required to live in the capital Edo for a year and serve the shogun. And this is called the Sankin Kotai service. And in 1701, Asano and Kamai were tasked with preparing a reception for envoys of the emperor, Emperor uh, Higashiyama in Edo during their Sankin Kotai. So they were in Edo despite being lords of the Akao and Tutsuano domains. They were in Edo. Mm -hmm. And the two of them together were given etiquette lessons to receive the emperor's envoys by an instructor known as Kira Kozuke Nosuke Yoshinaka, who I will refer to as... You're doing the, you're doing the Lord's work here, um, <laughs> pronouncing oh, names in a language you do not know. A language I don't know at all. Although I yeah. I know a little bit more about the pronunciation of Japanese because I've, I've like watched subtitled animes. And so it's like... Mm -hmm. Uh, this is this is my best, truly. Who yeah. I will refer to as Kira, and right. Kira showed a lot of dissatisfaction with the two of them, Kamai and Asano, um, perhaps because they did not offer him elaborate gifts um, or bribery that he was used to having worked for working for the shogun. And some sources say that Kira acted with a lot of arrogance. Now, arrogance particularly offended Asano because Asano was a moral Confucian. And if you know anything about Confucius, Confucius, arrogance is a no-go. Um, and some believe that Asano was also just unfamiliar with the customs of shogunate court. Again, he was from a much smaller domain um, that was um, very religious. And so him and Kira did not get along. Mm -hmm. But regardless of the specifics of why, offense was definitely taken by Asano and Kamai um, based off the way that Kira treated them. And Kamai quickly became enraged and he nearly killed Kira, but Kamai's counselors discouraged this course of action and instead bribed Kira behind Kamai's back. And so Kira suddenly began treating Kamai well and he sort of forgave Kira. But Kira continued okay. to treat Asano with contempt. Um, and one day in particular, he called Asano, quote, a country boar with no manners. 
And Asano was also enraged by this, especially because this was now really only happening to him and not Kamai. And this comment was the final straw for Asano. And inside Ido Castle, in the Grand Corridor, Asano attacked Kira with a katana. Asano merely wounded him in the face. He had a he got a cut and that scarred. Um, but they were separated mm-hmm. before he could strike again. Um, drawing a katana was forbidden in Ido Castle, and it was considered um, an offense. Asano was ordered to kill himself using the ritual of seppuku. And seppuku um, is what this is going to be a little gory. Seppuku is when um, a samurai cuts open their um, stomach to mm-hmm. liberate their bowels um in order to kill themselves um and it is considered okay. and it is considered an honorable death um, because mm-hmm. for the samurai they would rather take their own life than it is considered more honorable to take one's own life than to have their life taken from them um so mm-hmm. he, he but he was ordered to do it he didn't have a choice um and following this the shogun ordered his goods and land to be confiscated um, following his death, his family reputation ruined and his military followers to be named Ronin or leaderless samurai. They were not allowed to take up arms under another um, daimyo, which is important. So Asano's principal counselor, Oishi Kiranosuke Yoshio, heard this news um, and he managed to actually move Asano's family before surrendering the castle to the government. Um, but now him, as well as the hundreds of other samurai that were under Asano, were declared ronin. And they couldn't get jobs. Um, and they were kind of uh, left in a destitute position. Yeah. So Oishi and 46 other men refused to allow Asano's death to go unavenged. Which, in Japanese culture... Um, it is considered necessary for a for um samurai to avenge their master's death. That's like a very normal thing. Um, so they were like, "Yes, we can't let his death go unavenged." So they swore a secret oath to avenge their master Asano by killing Kira, even though they knew that they would have to die as a consequence. Mm-hmm. They knew that that would happen. Um, but Kira, knowing the traditions of the samurai, suspected that this would happen, and he kept his residence very well fortified um, and sort of hid away inside of his residence in Edo. And the Ronin, recognizing their inability to take the castle by force, instead came up with a new plan to disperse and disguise themselves as trademen, tradesmen and monks in the city of Edo um, and sort of pretend that they were letting go Asano's death, um, which in turn painted them as like poor and unfaithful samurai and it like really took a hit to their reputation yeah but imagine that twist when they reveal who they are (laughs) now this is a twist okay (laughs) ready but oishi their leader um who was well known as sort of uh asano's main guy went to Kyoto instead and he began frequenting brothels and taverns to show that revenge was not on his mind and he very purposefully ruined his reputation so meanwhile Kira sent spies to watch Asano's former samurai including primarily Oishi Um, now because of Oishi's choice to 
you know, drink and whore around, for lack of a better term. Um, he was scorned by other samurai men for not avenging his master and for seemingly becoming a drunk. Um, he went out and got drunk every single night and tried to make it look like he was not interested in doing anything having to do with fighting. Um, mm-hmm. And on one occasion, one a Satsuma man actually spat on him in the street when um, Oishi was drunk and trying to get home and stumbled and fell into the sewer um, or into the gutter. And the Satsuma man called him dishonorable and a lot of other terrible things or Mm-hmm. terrible things considering this was all part of a ruse but oishi didn't react he let the ruse continue oishi also div- divorced his wife of 20 years so that she would not be killed or imprisoned after the ronin took their revenge and she went with her two younger children to live with her parents but their oldest son chikara volunteered to stay with his father okay oishi- sad. it is sad but he did it for her own protection because she couldn't mm-hmm. be seen as related Um, Oishi began acting very unlike a samurai, frequenting geisha houses and acting obscenely in public. Again, this was a ruse to throw off Kira's agents. And so Kira became convinced that he was safe from Oishi and the other samurai after a year and a half of no attempts at revenge. A year and a half later of his spies reporting to him that these guys were doing nothing but drinking, he was like, okay. And he began to relax. And so the remaining Ronin, um, meanwhile, were working in Edo, and they managed to gain access to Kira's house as workmen, claiming to be there to fix up the walls or whatever. They kind of just got tradesman <laughs> jobs, and because they were lesser known of Asano's samurai, they were like, okay, sure. Um, they weren't recognized, and so they learned the layout of Kira's house. <gasps> one of the ronin went so far as to marry the daughter of the builder of the house to obtain its blueprints this is such a like twist at the end of the movie like revealed how it happened through flashback right like, and then like it all go backwards it's like how do they know and it's like you see the piece. <laughs> truly that's how i felt that's exactly how i felt after two years so we're now almost to 1703 when Oishi knew Kira's guard was down, he fled Kyoto very quickly so that the spies wouldn't have time to get back to Kira um, in time and secretly met with the Ronin to renew their oath. And on December 14th, 1702, Oishi and the other Ronin attacked Kira's mansion in the midst of a snowstorm, which I need you to imagine <gasps> that all this is happening and it's heavily snowing outside. Which This I think is, is so cinematic. It really is, which they tried to make a movie out of, out of it and Keanu Reeves plays the main character. Like every time they try to make a movie out of it, it's like crazy whitewash. It's actually very frustrating. Um, yeah. But if they actually, I, I know that there is a Japanese film about it, which I might try to watch because it's such, a, it's so interesting and like the visualization that you get from all of this is like just wait it gets better like the, the oh my goodness the metaphor the symbolism oh ooh, okay <laughs> okay so the motifs ooh. okay so <laughs> our english our t- high school english teachers would be proud they really would so to attack kira's residence they split into two groups and attacked with swords and bows. And one team was at the front of the house, which was led by Oishi, and the other entered through the back of the house, and that was led by his son, Chikara. The plan Mm -hmm. was that they were to blow, well, they had to wait for the sound of a drum to enter, enter the house, and they were to blow a whistle when Kira was located. And 
after they located him, they would cut off his head and lay it as an offering on their master's tomb. They were going to go to Asano's tomb in Edo, and then they would turn themselves in. This was the plan. Mm-hmm. So four men went in first, and they scaled the fence, and they captured the guards there, and they tied them up. Messengers, this is my favorite part. Messengers were sent to all the neighboring houses to explain that they were not robbers. They were in there to avenge their master and that they would only enter the complex to kill Kira and his, and his samurai and no one else will be hurt. To which the neighbors replied, okay, because they all <laughs> hated Kira and they did nothing to stop the Ronin. They were like, sure, do whatever you want. We won't tell anybody. They all were just like, sure, that sounds great. You do you. Which is my favorite part of the story. So then after they had settled, after all the message had gotten out, everyone knew, everyone in the town knew what was going on. It's like, we're just here to, we're just here to assassinate somebody and then we'll be out of your hair. Um, Archers were posted on the roof of the home to stop people from running for help. And Oishi finally sounded the drum and started the attack. So 10 of Kira's samurai held off the party at the front, but Chikara got in through the back of the house Kira, hearing the commotion, hid in a closet on a veranda with his wife and female servants while his soldiers attempted to get up there to rescue him. Mm-hmm. After an intense struggle, the Ronin killed 16 of Kira's men and wounded another 22, including Kira's grandson, but they could not locate Kira, so they raided the house. Oishi, according to legend, checked Kira's bed to find it still warm, so he knew he could <laughs> not be far. A search of the house then revealed a secret entrance to a courtyard hidden behind a large scroll. Like, you cannot tell me this isn't, like, <laughs> like this is a Christopher Nolan movie. So just a random group of Ronin, not Oishi, found the, found the scroll. And so a group of them went behind the scroll. There were a couple guards there. They killed them. And they found a man. But the man refused to give his name. So the Ronin captured him and they sounded the whistle. So Oishi came at the sound of the whistle and he recognized that the man was Kira because of the scar on his head left by Asano's attack. And so Oishi got on his knees before Kira because Kira had a higher rank than him and showed him that respect and told him that they were what's called a retainer of Asano, um, come to avenge him as the samurai rightfully should. And he invited Mm -hmm. Kira to die honorably as a samurai by completing seppuku. Um, Oishi also indicated that he would act as kaishakunin, which means that he would behead Kira after, like, completing seppuku to spare him a long death, because it does take a really long time to bleed out. Yeah. Uh, Which is considered, like, um, the merciful thing to do. He also offered Kira to complete seppuku with the same dagger that Asano had used to (gasps) do it on himself. But Kira refused. He said nothing. Apparently, he was speechless and shaking and afraid. And after quite some time of Oishi offering it to him again and again and again, um, Oishi ordered the Ronin to hold Kira down, and Oishi beheaded him with Asano's katana, which is considered a less honorable way to die because Mm -hmm. someone else took your life. They then left the house carrying Kira's head. This is also a tidbit that I loved. 
they turned off all the lamps and the like all the oil lamps and put out all the fires in the house so that the neighborhood wouldn't burn down by accident like they were so like well we told anybody oh nice like we told them we're not coming for anybody else so we really gotta you know we gotta be consistent which I just love I'm like yeah you kept your word thank you so they left the house with Kira's head and one Ronin Teresaka Kichi Kichemon sure traveled to a cow and reported the revenge is completed now some people say that he was sent to a cow some people said that he ran away yada but he so keep in mind that this next part there are 46 ronin but during the fight and the 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 number that took the oath was 47 okay okay so the ronin carried kira's head to their lord asano's grave which was 10 kilometers away Um, so they caused a scene in the city because they walked (laughs) through they were like after all this time truly they were they were Jeffsy on the bus. They were like, what is I? <laughs> the Asano Samurai. The Akau. What, are, what were they called? The Akau. The Akau Roshi. We have come. And everyone was like, yeah. Like everyone was thrilled. They were so happy. They were like, you have avenged your master. Like they were, they they had wild amount, wild amount of support in the city of Edo. Um, and many on their path praise them for their revenge. And so the remaining 46 Ronin arrived at the temple. They washed and cleaned Kira's head and they laid it along with the katana on Asano's tomb. They offered prayer and gave the abbot all the money they had left because as soon as they left the temple, they went and they turned themselves in. Oh. Yeah. So they kept their word. They were like, we're going to take exact this revenge and we will take the punishment for it. Um, they were arrested and Kira's friends came to collect his head from the temple. Now, this is a very fun fact. The receipt for the transaction of taking Kira's head still lives at the temple. It's still there. It's <gasps> written down. They it's have like, receipts. Which is one of the reasons we know this happened. Amongst nice. the fact that the temple exists and the grave of um, Asana Nagarochi is there. Naganori, mm. sorry. Asana Naganori. Having been arrested, um, the shogunate officials in Edo were put in a very tough spot with what to do with the 47 ronin. Because the samurai had followed the correct precept of honor by avenging their master. They had done what was expected of them as samurai. But they had also defied the shogunate authority who had banned revenge against Kira because Asano had attacked him in the, in the castle. So it was this like weird tricky line where it was like, well, they did what they were like culturally supposed to, but legally banned from, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, and the Shogun actually received a number of petitions from the populace on behalf of the Ronin, begging them to spare their life because they avenged their masters, after, uh, because they had avenged their master and gotten rid of a person that they saw as like corrupt and not a good person. Kira was not well liked. And so the shogun um, did sentence the ronin to death, but he allowed them to honorably commit seppuku instead of being executed as criminals, which most others would have been had they killed a higher lord or someone of Mm -hmm. a higher rank than them. So each of the 47 ronin, uh, or each of the 46 ronin, omitting Terasaka Kichimon, who had left for a cow, killed himself on February 4th, 1703. Terasaka, when he eventually did return to Edo, um, was actually pardoned, so he did not have to 
take his life like the other the other Roman. He actually lived to be 87 and he was one of the youngest members. The youngest the youngest person was Chikara Oishi's son. Um, and Terasaka was like not much older than him. So he lived like 70 years beyond this incident. And he, at the time of his death, he was still buried with his comrades. All of them were buried in the Sen- in the Sengaku Ji temple, which is where Asano is buried. And they are buried in front of him as like, as if they guard his tomb. The clothes and arms that they wore on December 14th are preserved in the temple to this day, along with the drum and the whistle used that I mentioned before. The tombs at Sengaku-ji Temple um, became a venerated place, and it still is considered um, a very important uh, political monument today. The graves have been visited by millions of people over the years, and many um, in Japan make make pilgrimages to Edo to see it. Which is now, Edo is now mm-hmm. Tokyo, by the way. So Tokyo. Okay. You may remember back when Oishi was performing his alcoholic ruse that I mentioned that Satsuma man had mocked Oishi and spat on him for not acting like a true samurai. Well, that man traveled to Edo and visited the grave of the Ronin and begged Oishi for forgiveness after he had died and then committed suicide on Oishi's grave. And he, that man, that Satsuma man, was buried next to the Roman. Which is just like, <laughs> you were va- they were barely involved, but okay. <laughs> but he's there. <laughs> Jaffsy be like. <laughs> Jaffsy be like. He's the Jaffsy. So as far as the legacy of the Ronin, their revenge was primarily an act of loyalty, but they also were attempting to reestablish the Asano's lordship and find jobs for the several hundred other samurai who had been left jobless by Asano's death but did not participate in the revenge plot. The revenge of the Ronin um, did clear the Asano's name um, and the names of the other samurai, and many of the unemployed Ronin found jobs um, after this group completed their seppuku and sort of their names were cleared and they were able to go work for other daimyo. Asano died... Gaku Nagahiro, which was the younger brother of the Asano that I had mentioned before, was allowed by the shogunate to reestablish the Asano name, and he did regain a tenth of their original land. So, something, you know? Yeah. Today, this is one of the most popular samurai and military stories in Japan, often depicted in art and kabuki theater, as well as in television shows. And on each year, on December 14th, the Sengaku-ji Temple holds a festival commemorating the 47 Ronin. And that... It's a wild story. That is the 47 Ronin story. Like, if you had started... If you had told me this whole story, I'd be like, cool, sounds like a cool movie. And then you ended it with, and it really happened. I'd be like, yeah! get out of town yeah no (laughs) that is what happened that's that thank you so much for listening you can find us on instagram twitter and facebook at ykwibw podcast you can check out our website ifeandwondering.com if you like what you're hearing please consider leaving us a five-star review on itunes and finally if you have something that you've been wondering you can email us at ifeandwonderingpodcast at gmail.com and we'd love to put it on our show Okay, uh, can I ask you something that's really like, it's very vague, but yeah, yeah. I'll, here, let me pitch it to you, okay, Sarah. Pitch it. Yeah. Do you know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering? <laughs> <laughs>
in the spirit of International Women's Day, and I think March being Women's Month or something like that, um, I would like you to talk about, there are some female scientists that are talked about a lot, Uh but I know there are many more that are like never given credit. I've been wondering if there are any majorly important female scientists that are just really not talked about. Yeah. I know there are some, but like, like, like that's really vague, but like you could pick no. one, you could pick a list. No, I, I will do that. I will do that. What I was going to ask you is similar. So I'm going to save what I was going to ask you. Oh, okay. Okay. Because it doesn't, it's not constrained. Like it would be a cool thing to talk about for women's month, but this'll be, this'll be better. Now this is going to sound boring, but I promise it's not. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I want you to talk about the building of the Brooklyn Bridge. (laughs) It does sound boring, but I feel like I vaguely heard some things about like it swinging at one point or like. There Maybe that's some, a different version I'm thinking of, but there is some okay. tea. And the reason I'm asking about this is because today I learned that one of the key builders died in the middle of building it, and his wife took over <gasps> in like the early 1900s. And I was like, "Oh, a strong lady." But I I know from um, a book that I've read about something else that there was a lot of drama around the building of the Brooklyn Bridge. Also, at the time it was built, it was the longest suspension bridge in the world which is cool. Wow. And it like they, it was it is very architecturally important for a lot of reasons, but I just want to talk <laughs> to you, I I want you to talk about I don't want you to be like and then they put up the wire. Like I want to know about the like <laughs> you know the process. And then in April they built a support beam yeah. and then in- <laughs> and the iron came from Idaho and <laughs> came from Canada. No, I don't I don't care about any of that. You know what I want. I want the drama. I want the tea. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. That sounds good. So, that's what's coming at you next week. Thank you so much for listening. This is you know what I've been wondering. <laughs>